Welcome to Perfect Night In. I'm Neil Perryman and this is my small way of spreading a little love across the internet because it doesn't half need some right now. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by visiting patreon.com forward slash perfect night in. I'm currently only $16 away from releasing an extra special episode where I'll be the guest and I can tell you why I think Upstairs Downstairs is the best television program ever made. Oh, and while we're at it, you may not know that Perfect Night In is also a vidcast, and you can actually watch clips from the shows that have been chosen by all my guests. You can find the videos on perfectnightin.tv. And if you're watching the video right now, here's a photo of Monty, one of my cats. Right, that's enough of that. It's time to meet today's guest, a man who I have been mistaken for in real life twice, and I was only hit the once. Yes, that's right, it's Ian Berryman, deputy editor of SFX magazine and, even more impressively, the man behind the Top of the Pops Facts Twitter account. He's also a really nice bloke, so let's go ahead and meet him. Hello, Ian. Hello, Neil. Can I just say how honoured I am that I'm the first middle-aged man you've invited on? I, I think it's, you know... I thought I'd switch up the pace a bit. Yeah, I think it's a really good step forward in, um, you know, in terms of representation and that. So, so thank you. Okay, so we're here on your perfect night in. It's going to start at six thirty, and you're predictably choosing one of the programs that everybody else is trying to avoid, like the plague. Yeah, I'm not bothered about being cool. I decided not to go with the first episode I can remember, or the best ever Doctor Who story. I mean, they're both the same Doctor Who story, which is Tom Baker's City of Death, written by Douglas Adams. It's just too obvious, basically, so if you've not seen that, go and watch it. It's a work of genius. Instead, I thought I'd go for the story which came immediately after that in 1979, which is The Creature from the Pit. Hello, everybody. Doctor, are you all right? Yes, I'm fine. I'm so worried about you. No, you shouldn't be worried. Time Lords have 90 lives. How many have you got through there? About 130. I think it's the most underrated Doctor Who story. Doctor Who magazine, they did a survey last in 2014 where they got their readers to give everything marks out of 10. And at the time, Creature from the Pit came 211th out of 241 stories. Now, just to give you some context for people who know their Doctor Who, that's 82 places below Sylvester McCoy's battlefield, which is f***ing ridiculous, quite frankly. Because it's much better than that. Um, and I think it's it's written by the guy who I think is the most underrated Doctor Who writer as well, which is David Fisher. Um, he also did The Androids of Tara, which is this lovely riff on The Prisoner of Zenda. He did The Stones of Blood, which is about these killer standing stones. Yeah, let's forget the leisure hive. Point the dog against the rock! First of all, it creates this world which feels quite plausible to me. So it's basically the story is Doctor arrives on this jungle planet called Chloris, which is very short on, on metals. And it's run by this ruthless woman, Lady Adrasta. And basically anyone who falls foul of her, she chucks them into this massive pit to get crushed by a giant monster. And then eventually turns out that this uh, monster is actually an intelligent, reasoning alien creature. It's actually an, a, an alien ambassador that's come to this planet to do a trade deal. So that's a good Doctor Who moral for starters. You know, don't judge by appearances. And it's also incredibly witty, the script, uh, partly because of David Fisher, partly because, you know, it's script edited by Douglas Adams, probably partly because there's some Tom Baker ad libs there. He got a bit bored in rehearsals, which I think are usually improvements, to be honest. Have you ever thought of taking up another line of work? I don't think astrology is your forte. It does another thing that David Fisher does a lot, which is it's got these really good female roles. So the, the villain, Lady Adrastra, is fantastic. It's the best story, I think, for Romana, who's the kind of, female Time Lord companion. She's really great. She's got this fantastic sequence where she bosses about some bandits and 
just basically takes control of the uh, of, of of the situation. Well, I really must be on my way. I do hope we don't meet again. I can't honestly say it's been a pleasure. And it's also got one of Doctor Who's best supporting characters, I think, which is Organon, who's this astrologer played by Geoffrey Belden, who was Catweasel. And he's just incredibly charming. Your luck's still holding out. It is rather, isn't it? You must have been born under a particularly favourable conjunction of celestial circumstances. I was. What sign were you born under? Crossed computers. Crossed what? Computers. It's the symbol of the maternity service on Gallifrey. Oh. So no way, basically, is it 211th out of the first 241 Doctor Who stories. And the reason why it gets voted like that, well, there's no getting around it. Basically, the alien looks like a gigantic 200-foot-long snot-green penis. And actually, it's even worse than that. It looks like a big knob, and it also has these kind of knob-like appendages instead of arms. So it's kind of like... You know, it's knobs on knobs. It's kind of like a, it's like a Mandelbrot set of penises, basically. What's it for? Is it a weapon? It's like a giant quivering ball sack. Well, yeah, you might want to see your doctor, Neil. But yeah, I take your point. It is a bit scrotal. But I just think, you know, it's, it's got lots of qualities and those which are not overridden by the fact that it's got a big cock monster in it. I mean, the, the reason I want episode three is... That is the one where notoriously Tom Baker tries to communicate with this alien by kind of blowing into one of these appendages like it's a speaking tube or something. And it does look a bit like Doctor Who is sucking off a giant blob monster. Don't get frightened, it's all right. It's all right. There. Yeah, that's not so bad now, is it? Good girl. I mean, all this, of course, terribly embarrasses a certain type of uptight, boring Doctor Who fan who wants to be taken seriously, who are, in my view, the very worst kinds of Doctor Who fans. And that's a shame because I think it's a delight. You know, the creature does look funny, okay, but that just adds pleasure to it for me. So basically, episode three, because it will really piss off those people and they are dullards. Okay, so the giant cock monster takes us nicely up to seven o'clock, and your next choice, Ian, is... BBC Television presents Tony Hancock in... Ha 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 ha, Hancock's half hour! And which episode have you chosen? I was going to have the missing page, but then some other bastard beat me to that. So I'm going to have the reunion party, which I really like as well. I don't think I'm familiar with that one. Well, basically, it's um, it's an episode where Tony arranges to meet up with three of his old buddies from the day in, his days in the army, uh, and he's he's kind of expecting a massive piss up and lots of kind of ribald stories about the good old days, but then the, just the whole thing is a massive disappointment. Beautiful friendships are formed in those days, born in the heat of battle, born in the heat of battle, <laughs> and forged in the plonk bars of Cairo. Oh, you love them, Sid. They were a marvellous bunch of lads. Four of us, we were like quads we wear. Smudger Smith, Ginger Johnson, Chalky White and me. Kippers Hancock. <laughs> How do you know they call me Kippers? <laughs> With your feet, what else could they call it? You know, like one of the guys is teetotal and totally under the thumb and has brought his kind of horribly severe wife with him. Another is, he used to have this mop of ginger hair, is now completely bald and blind as a bat. Uh, he's actually played by Clive Dunn. Obviously he was... Um, Corporal Jones in Dad's Army. And then the third guy turns up who he thinks is going to rescue the whole thing with some lewd jokes. 
and he takes off his coat and it turns out he's a vicar. So the whole thing is just a massive disappointment. And I actually prefer the radio series of Tancock to the TV series. And my favourite episode of that is Sunday Afternoon at Home, which is basically just Hancock sitting around being really bored on a Sunday for a half an hour. And it's full of these painful kind of Pinterest silences. And I think this TV episode is the nearest the TV series gets to that. It has a bit of that quality. You know, it's got these old friends get together. They basically have nothing whatever to say to one another beyond just kind of repeating... Uh, well, you know, 15 years, eh? Hmm. 15 years. Yes. Yes, well, 15 years. It's a long time. Yes, a long time. A lot of water's flown under the bridge since those days. Certainly has. Yes, it is a long time. Yes, it certainly is. And it's something tragic and, like recognizable about that and it's you know it's about that kind of gap between nostalgia and reality and the foolishness ultimately of just of trying to recapture your your golden days from the past so how did you get into hancock in because um you're still a young man this is before your time yeah I, I guess it's down to my dad's record collection basically my dad is a country and western fan which means there was so basically he had an lp of re-recordings of two of the classic Hancock uh, TV episodes, probably the best well-known ones, which is the Radio Ham and the Blood Donor. And they were redone for this LP in about 1961, I think. And he had an LP of that. So it was basically listen to that or listen to Dolly Parton. So obviously I listened to that a lot and really loved it and listened to it over and over again. And then I got more episodes on cassette and listened to them obsessively over and over again until I could, you know, basically recite them. Then got fascinated by his life as well, which, you know, I don't know if people who know Tony Hancock's life, but it's, it's, it's really fascinating. It's kind of a really tragic story of this guy who sort of in the pursuit of a purer form of comedy, which was more international. And, you know, he had this thing about he wanted to be less reliant on gimmicks and catchphrases. But in in the course of pursuing that, he just kind of cut himself off gradually from all his co-stars, people like Sid James, and then eventually from his, his main writers, Ray Galton and Alan Simpson. And then eventually he just kind of, you know, this this tragic descent into alcoholism and he died by committing suicide in Australia. So it's a really tragic story, but a fascinating one as well. Oh, evening, Mr H. Nice weather for the ducks, eh? You're right there, my goodness me. There's more water out there than there is in your beer. <laughs> Very cold for this time of the year, isn't it? It's perishing. It's absolutely perishing. Yeah. What's the forecast then? More to come. I've just been watching the bloke on the television. Sticking little metal clouds all over the place he was. <laughs> well, the trouble is, as he was saying, there's a deep depression centred over Northern Ireland. It's moving in. By tomorrow midday, it'll be covering the whole of South East England, Southern Ireland and the home counties. South cones have been hoisted. <laughs> they haven't. They have. What are they? I don't know. <laughs> I just think he was an incredible comic actor, you know, probably one of the best we've ever had in this country. His sense of timing is absolutely impeccable. He's a great mime, and just that face, that kind of hangdog expression he has is so expressive, you know. And this character that he created, this slightly pompous, downbeat, sometimes pretentious, sometimes a philistine character, is just a brilliant creation and very British and I just think Dalton and Simpson who who wrote his scripts were just 
geniuses. You know, if you, you read one of their scripts now, 60 years on, and there might be a few cultural references that you might need to Google, you know, if maybe if you don't know who Arthur Askey is or something. But generally, it all really stands up well, and it's, it's just got a timeless quality about it. I'll give you a toast to absent friends, and may they long stay that way. Good help. Tony Hancock takes up to 7.30, and what have you got for us next, Ian? Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And which episode have you gone for? Uh, I've gone for Series 3, Season 3, Episode 13, which is the Zeppo. Um, remind me, what happens in that one? Uh, well, the Zeppo's a, a Xander-centric episode, basically. So Xander's kind of Buffy's friend who hasn't got any magic ability, any special powers. He's just this regular kind of geeky schlub whose only real skill is making pop culture references or wisecracks. Obviously, I massively empathise and identify with him. <laughs> so I've always been a sucker for Xander-centric episodes, and I think this is the best one. It does one of those things, those formal things that I really love, which is to invert the A plot and the B plot. So you've got two story threads in the episode. In the main one, Buffy and uh, the others are trying to prevent the apocalypse from happening again. So that should be the A plot, obviously. Normally it would be. And then in the other, the B plot, Xander's getting mixed up with these, uh, these zombie jocks, basically. And events just kind of spiral out of control in an increasingly hilarious way. It's just that it's bugging me, this cool thing. But I mean, what is it? How do you get it? Who doesn't have it? And who decides who doesn't have it? What is the essence of cool? Not sure. I mean, you yourself, Oz, are considered more or less cool. Why is that? Am I? Is it about the talking? You know, the way you tend to express yourself in short, non-committal phrases? It could be. It's got a bit of a feel of the Scorsese film After Hours to it, which is a film I really love as well. And that's another format that I love, you know, that, that format of just a regular guy and then crazy things are happening to him and they're just snowballing out of control. And it's a really good showcase for Nicholas Brendan, who um, sort of sadly, well, he's sort of faded into obscurity after Buffy and he's sort of gone off the rails because I, I think his, you know, his career went nowhere really afterwards and he had issues of alcohol and that kind of thing, which is sad to hear. But, what you know, back in 1999, he was just utterly charming in this role and in this episode, Xander basically gets to save the lives of all of his friends. He prevents the high school being blown up with a bomb. And they never even realise that he, he did all this. Oh, and he, and, and he loses his virginity to Faith, who is this incredibly sexy bad girl slayer played by Eliza Dushku. And just, I just think the whole episode is just hilarious and heartwarming at the same time. It, it sort of does that classic thing of the guy who protests that he's a coward and that he's no use. The reason the episode is called The Zeppo is that it's a reference to the kind of spare wheel Marx brother, Zeppo Marx. So he kind of protests that he's useless and a coward, but he proves that he's actually not a coward because he's the guy who is frightened. But he does step up anyway, which actually requires more courage than doing that if you're actually really powerful and strong and capable. It must be really hard when all your friends have, like, superpowers. Slayer, werewolf, witches, vampires, and you're like this little nothing. You must feel like Jimmy Olsen. I was just talking to, 
Hey, mind your own business. Ooh, I struck a nerve. The boy that had no cool. I happen to be an integral part of that group. I happen to have a lot to offer. Oh, please. I do. Integral part of the group? Xander, you're the, the useless part of the group. You're the Zeppo. There's rumours that Buffy might be coming back. How do you feel about that? Absolutely fine. Doesn't bother me at all. I don't really, I don't really get why that kind of thing bothers people. Go, oh, they're making a new Buffy. It's going to ruin Buffy for me. Well, it's not. Your DVDs are still on the shelf. You know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna stand around some stormtroopers to kick your door open and then flame throw all your DVD box sets, are they? You know, it might be, it might be good. The very worst that is going to happen is there'll be a not very good version of Buffy on telly that you never, you literally never need to watch. There might be a good role for Xander. He might be the Nick Fury of the Buffyverse. That's true. And he has the eye patch as well. Exactly. If anyone sees my spine laying around, just try not to step on it. Xander, one of these days you're going to get yourself hurt. Or killed. Or both. And, you know, with the pain and then the death. Maybe you shouldn't be leaping into the fray like that. Maybe you should be fray adjacent. Excuse me? Who at a crucial moment distracted the lead demon by allowing her to pummel him about the head? Yeah, that was real manly, how you shrieked and all. I think you'll find that was more of a bellow. Okay, Ian, it's 8.30. What have you got for us next? Bob and Rose. I've never seen Bob and Rose. Sell it to me. Well, I couldn't really do this podcast about having something by Russell T. Davis, just because I think he is basically one of the greatest TV writers of our generation. And if you don't agree, well, f*** you, basically. You're wrong. I love his revival of Doctor Who. Um, It's my favourite version since the series came back. I love his non-Doctor Who things. Bob and Rose, which came out on ITV in 2001, it's it's probably my favourite. I think he's written better things since, to be honest. A very English scandal, the the Jeremy Thorpe drama that aired last year. That's it's probably better than this. I, I know that. It's not his most important series. That's probably still Queer as Folk, which was you know groundbreaking in the way that it represented gay culture on on television. But I just have a soft spot for this series. It's basically about Bob and Rose, who are two strangers who meet and fall in love. Bob, played by Alan Davis, Rose is played by Leslie Sharp. And there are all the usual kind of bumps in the road and forces militating against them getting together and like old partners and friends and family. But the big complication is that Bob is gay. And it's based on a true story. Uh, basically, there was a, a, a gay friend of Russell T. Davis's who did fall in love with a woman and they got married, had kids. So it's obviously quite a quite a bold thing to do, really, coming from someone who'd done Queer as Folk. And I know that he got a lot of stick at the time for that from sections of the gay community who were like, oh, well, you know, what are you saying here? He's saying that just all gay men need to do is meet the right woman, you know. But if you watch it, it's not like that at all. I'm a huge fan of Leslie Sharp. She's fantastic in it. It does something which I think Russell C. Davis does very well, which is it kind of nails the, the way that ordinary people talk. You know, people say it's like a bit like being on the bus server hearing people, but a bit more interesting that it's like hearing really funny people on the bus. We could always move away. Bath's nice. On the south coast. Nice little village somewhere miles away from any of those bastards. We could run a local shop for local people. Is that from something? I've so got to finish with you. 
And another thing I really like about it is there's a lot of ways in which people sort of behave badly in Bob and Rose. Initially, Bob hides his sexuality from Rose. And Rose, when she's getting involved with him, she's cheating on her long-term boyfriend at the start, who's, who's a perfectly nice guy. He's done nothing wrong. And also Bob's best friends, this is the kind of one of the conflict elements of it. She's got this best friend, Holly, played by Jessica Hines uh, from Spaced. She basically spends the entire thing trying to break them up because she's she's jealous. She's always been wanting to be with Bob. So there's lots of people kind of behaving slightly badly. But it's it's so well characterized that you don't feel like any of them are bad people. It's it's a bit like when your best friend confides in you that they've done something a bit stupid, you know. Like sleeping around or whatever, and you and you sort of find it hard to judge them in the way that you might judge a stranger, or if you were just reading about it in the newspaper or something. I used to despair walking around the streets of Manchester. You could go for five years and not see a handsome face, and then I start going out with you, and I see them all the time. Every man we walk past. I don't want them. Bollocks. And you should. Get out there and have them. I'm stopping you. I don't want them. Don't believe you. Never will. The thing about it that really gets me is, and as anyone who knows me can attest, I am quite a hardened, cynical bastard. <laughs> I'm not generally affected by sentimentality. But Bob and Rose is just one of those, one of those things that just... It just makes me cry, basically, and especially the cliffhangers. So, like the, the you know, everyone they all kind of end with some big emotional moment. Like they'll have a fallout and then they're reunited. The end of episode one makes me tear up. Episode two, episode three, episode four, first four episodes basically. I'm I'm I've got a massive lump in my throat every time I rewatch them. And there's only really you know it, it's funny really. I think there's only two people who can kind of reliably make me choke up with a, a piece of television or film. And they're, they're Frank Capra and Russell T Davis. You're a big softie. I am, I am secretly, but please don't tell anyone. And if, if anyone's listening, can you just forget that you know that? Go on then, go on a date, go to dinner, sit there with someone new, try it. Sit there and talk, tell them all about yourself right from the start. You might get a kiss, you might get a snog. Then you've got to take your clothes off in front of a complete stranger. When did you last do that? And maybe it works. It's a relationship. Fantastic. Two months later, finished. Start again. Dinner. Snog. Naked. Six months. Finished. Start again. Dinner and sex. Again. And again. And it never bloody works. Is that what you want? Marvellous, as Russell T Davis would say, no doubt. Hooray! Hooray! Okay, Ian, before we start your 9.30 choice, I think it's time for some snacks. Have you got some chocolate or crisps I can get you? Oh, I don't really like chocolate, to be honest. And the problem, with, well, the problem with crisps is I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a crispaholic. It's like crack for me. So basically, if I eat one packet of crisps, I'll probably like wake up in a ditch the next day covered in 60 empty packets, you know. Can I just ask you what your favourite flavour of Monster Munch is? It's pickled onion, obviously, isn't it? There's no debate. Dear, oh dear, oh dear. Monster Munch. They're monstrous. Okay, Ian, while you overdose on Monster Munch, I'll queue up your 9.30 choice. Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. Big Night Out was just massively important to me when it, when it first came out in 1990, 91. I remember in A-level art classes, we used to basically act it out. 
so we'd have that that Bob Mortimer character, the the man with the stick. And I had a friend who used to put on this helmet made of cardboard with eye holes cut in it. And we'd draw stupid pictures on this cardboard helmet and then he'd, he'd come out of the, the stationary cupboard or whatever and, and be the man with the stick. We didn't get an awful lot done in, sometimes in A-level art, you can probably tell. Yeah, so it just, it just, it just reminds me of that because I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. The man with the stick has been on holiday, on holiday, with his so-called mate, Terry Soul, and he's going to sing a song for us. Let's meet Man with the Stick. This year's works holiday was two weeks away in Greece. It was all arranged by Terry who gets flights cheap. I did not find out about it till the day before they left. No details on the notice board. I was completely in the dark. I think my favourite sequence ever is, um, I can't remember which episode it is, but it's in series two. And it's where Vic and Bob adopt these personas, this performance art project called Action Image Exchange. And they they come out and they put on these like these rubbish cardboard masks of Jimmy Hill's face, and then they play along to this piece of cheesy music. And and Bob's holding, a, for some reason, Bob is holding like a beehive, which he's beating like a drum, and then Vic's holding a large bra, which he twangs in time to the music. And it's just utterly pathetically childish, but it makes me nearly wet myself with laughter every time I see it. If you'd just like to explain what you'll be doing... What I'm going to be doing is um, representing time passing over a radiator. <laughs> I'm, going to be, I'm going to be representing an envelope passing over Dennis Potter's bread bin. <laughs> Let's go. Actually, one thing I really like about it as well is that it... It always kind of seemed just on the verge of collapsing into total chaos, you know? Like, you, like Vic was kind of stumbling over his lines, and it, it's not slick at all. And a lot of the time you'd sort of think, are they a bit half-cut, you know? I think it's a bit like Monty Python as well, in that it, it did that thing of, they just kind of chuck everything at the wall and see how much of it sticks. And not everything does. I'd, I'd probably say that about 20% of it doesn't land, just, just falls flat. But it doesn't really matter, because just... 80% of it does land and is absolutely hilarious. We've got uh, some really top treats on the for you tonight. We've got a family of trained puffins who are going to be driving a... They're going to be driving a, a vintage traction engine over some really nice, d delicious, fresh olives <laughs> without crushing their mind and they're going to be reversing it back through the smallest keyhole in Britain. It's back on TV now. I haven't seen it. Um, is it as good as it was? It's really good, yeah. I'm, I'm a, so far... See, they're probably going to do this on this week. So they haven't done the man with the stick yet, which I'm a bit disappointed by. Yeah, it's it's still the same. It's still that same kind of hit rate. And when it hits, there's been a couple of things every episode that have just just reduced me to a, like a puddle on the floor in hysterics. It's really good to have them back, and it's it's a no brainer. It seems BBC Four because it's just so cheap as chips to make, you know. So I hope they continue doing it. I hope they do loads because it's as good as ever. I think. It's coming up to 10pm, Ian. What treat have you got in store for us now? Someone by night, someone by 
Moonlighting. I'm going to go for a season two episode called The Lady in the Iron Mask. I'm not even sure that it's the best one, but it's it's one where one of the first ones where I think they're really kind of nailing what they're doing. So the, the plot of the episode is that David Addison, who's Bruce Willis, uh, this is the show that made him famous, and Maddie Hayes, Sybil uh, Shepherd, they're private detectives and they get hired by a woman who had acid thrown in her face by a jilted lover years ago to find the man who threw acid in her face because, twist, she's decided that she still loves him and wants to get back together with him, which is weird. Are we here to judge the motives of our every client? No. Ours is not the reason why. Do lawyers not defend people they know are guilty of sin? Do doctors not treat patients they know are going to die? Do teachers not teach students they know are dumb as stumps? We are not taking this case. No? No. Maddie, you're not hearing I'm me. I'm sick of hearing you. I feel an obligation here. That's your breakfast. Where's your humanity? I had to hock it to pay my rent. So they, they go and track this guy down. And then later, he turns up dead. And obviously, the suspicion falls on her then. And it's got a very kind of film noir feel to it. It's got quite kind of Bernard Herrmann-esque music, but also like, like film noir blended with farce as well. And it ends with this wonderful sequence, which I love. So you have this woman who's hired them, this woman in the veil uh, covering her face. Because of the way the plot turns out, you have the killer who's, uh, sorry, spoilers, uh, the killer who's dressed as the lady in the veil as well. And then Sybil Shepherd is dressed as the lady in the veil. And then Bruce Willis is dressed as the Lady in the Veil. And it basically ends up with all four of them chasing each other around this hotel corridor. And then, as if that's not great enough, they then run into this corridor where they've been shampooing the carpet. Uh, So there's this massive foam and they all slip on the carpet and just slide into this massive heap of bodies. And it's just, it's just, it's just hilarious. I must have done something horrible in a past life. What do you suggest we do? Nail Barbara Wiley. Oh, that'll be easy. We've certainly thrown the fear of God into her, haven't we? We certainly haven't. That's why we're going to nab her. Why is that? Because she's sure she's got the two stooges licked. So she's going to let up, make a mistake. All we got to do is rattle her cage. What'll that get us? A second chance. What'll that get us? Evidence, Maddie. Evidence. The kind of stands up in court. The kind of sits down in jail. The kind of crosses his legs in a bar. So are they still in the will they or won't they phase of the relationship at this point? Yeah, it's in that kind of sweet spot. Because eventually they kind of do get together and that sort of ruins it. I mean, it is that is a big part of the appeal of the show is that it's one of those classic love-hate relationships and they're, they're constantly bickering because, you know, he's really facetious and she's very kind of quite prim and proper. And it's a bit like one of those screwball comedies of the 30s with someone like, you know, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and they're just verbally sparring all the time. And, you know, I mean, apparently behind the scenes, they, they you know, they couldn't stand each other, the two, uh, the two actors. But the on-screen chemistry is really good, really good. That's one of the things I love about Moonlighting. But the other thing is just how adventurous it is. I mean, it started out fairly straight, but then as the series progressed, they got more and more, um, more and more playful. And they do things like breaking the fourth wall and having the characters talking to the camera. There's a Christmas episode which ends with the cast just walking off the set, going behind the cameras. And then the whole cast and crew are gathered around on the soundstage and they sing the first Noel. And there's fake snow falling and they say Merry Christmas to the audience. And they did lots of very kind of high concept episodes. They did a black and white episode set in the 40s. They did a version of It's a Wonderful Life. They did a version of uh, The Taming of the Shrew. So it's it's very postmodern, you know, and, and very clever, really. And I think, you know, quite quite ahead of its time. 
When I sit home at night thinking about the perfect person to compliment my complex personality, you're not the first to spring to mind. Springs to what? You know what your problem is? I fear I'm looking at it. It makes you so crazy to think that you need me. I don't need you. You do need me. I'm your lifeline, honey. Without me to... Without you, I wouldn't be here at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to figure out how to prove a, a woman who seems to have killed a man didn't and a man who's, who seems to not have did. Without you, I wouldn't be involved in this stupid case. Without you... What? Never mind. What? Never mind. No, I want to hear it. No, you don't. Moonlighting takes us up to 11 o'clock and your next choice is... And which one have you chosen? I thought about going for the 2001 special. Ah, <gasps> no. Yeah, exactly. Which is, basically they did six episodes and then they did a one-off. And the one-off was uh, themed on paedophilia. And it's a great piece of television, but it's, like, I re-watched it a couple of weeks ago and it's so dark. So dark. It's just incredibly near the knuckle. And, you know, you rewatch it and this is 17, 18 years on and it still makes you gasp. You know, you make you think, how did they get this commissioned and and shot and transmitted? It's a bit too grim for a perfect night, isn't it? It'd be a bit like choosing threads. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or watching Sarlo, you know. So I've gone, instead, I've gone for the second episode, Drugs, which is infamously the one where um, Chris Morris, who's the guy behind Brass Eye, the one where he got the likes of uh, Noel Edmonds and Bruno Brooks to record warnings about this new drug called Cake. What is cake? Well, it has an active ingredient, which is a dangerous psychoactive compound known as dimesmeric anison phosphate. It stimulates the part of the brain called Shatner's bassoon. And that's the bit of the brain that deals with time perception. So, a second feels like a month. Well, almost sounds like fun. Unless you're the Prague schoolboy who walked out into the street straight in front of a tram. He thought he'd got a month to cross the street. And he was one of those, the first people to do that. It's, it's kind of a, quite a routine thing now. It's sort of, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen does that a lot now, um, which is this thing to just showing that if you're persuasive enough and sound plausible enough, you can get famous people to say just practically anything on camera, which is always entertaining and particularly when it's someone as pompous and deluded as Noel Edmonds making a complete idiot themselves. So, if someone offers you cake, they might call it Looney Toad Quack. Russell Dust. Chronic Basil and Donuts. Joss Eklund's Spunky Backpack. Bromicide. Ponce on the Heath. Cool Thwax and Charlie. Argue Barmies. Or Hattie Jake's Potentious Cheese Wog. Chuck it back in the face and tell him to f*** off. But the thing I really love is the sequences where Chris Morris just goes out onto the street and they're doing secret filming and they just film him approaching drug, like, drug dealers on street corners and asking for, like, um, so you got any yellow bentines, mate? Got any khaki cat? And there's this, this completely confused <laughs> drug dealer who's just getting increasingly exasperated until he eventually just says, look, look, mate, will you leave me alone? Will you go away? 
Um, and then there's a bit later on where he goes back and he's wearing a nappy and holding a teddy bear and he's got some sort of Belisha Beacon type helmet on. And you just watch this and you think, you're going to get stabbed. Have, uh, have you got any triple sod? Any? Any triple sod? Triple sod? Triple sod? What's that? Uh, yellow benteens? Yeah. I don't know what that is, my friend. Have you not got any yellow benteens? What's yellow benteens? I just want to say something that you know, makes it go really bluty. No, the only thing sell out is cold, man. There's another episode where Chris Morris is doing an interview with Mad Frankie Fraser. You know? I do like, like the 60s gangster. This is the guy who was in the Richardson gang, you know? And like purportedly used to torture people by pulling their teeth out with pliers. And Chris Morris is taking the piss out of him on national television. You know, I mean, it's just, so I don't know about brass eye. It's more like balls of steel because he's just, he's obviously got a massive clanging pair of them. Well, I just heard a rumour about it. I, uh, I don't know what's happened at all. Apparently Clive Anderson was shot. Clive Anderson was shot by who? Not by, by Noel Edmonds, yeah. What? No. I'd say there's no excuse. None whatsoever. And if Edmonds is still inside the house... Well, just shoot him. Chris Morris is one of my television heroes, absolutely. Huge hero. He's just this kind of televisual anarchist, basically. And I think he was doing things 20 years ago that no one has surpassed in terms of, you know, television comedy. And, and they probably, sadly, I think they probably never will. He had a lot of interference from Michael Grade, who was the head of Channel 4, um, demanding edits. And in the final episode of the original, <laughs> the original six... He just had a single frame subliminal message which flashed up reading, Grade is a c Which, obviously, as a Doctor Who fan, I massively endorse. Could so easily have been like that for me, but luckily the amount of heroin I use is harmless. I inject about once a month on a purely recreational basis. Fine. But what about other people less stable, less educated, less middle class than me? Builders or blacks, for example. If you're one of those, my advice to you is leave well alone. Brasside takes us up to 11.30, but before we start your final choice, can I get you a drink? Yeah, could I have a, a pint, please? Just uh, just a regular pint of beer. No, I don't want any fancy craft ale with the, like floral notes or anything. I don't, I, I don't want anything that tastes like they've put water in one of those potpourri sachets that you put in your knicker drawer. Nothing, nothing like that. Just like an unpretentious pint of bitter, please. A pint of Worthington Best Bitter, please. There's one best bitter that's really worth waiting for. Worthington Best Bitter. The only best bitter worthy of our name. OK, Ian, we've reached that point in the night where it's time for your final choice and you've chosen a movie double bill. Yeah, so Movie Drome is a BBC Two cult movie season slash slot, which ran from 1988 to 2000. And it was the way that I first encountered a lot of great films that I love now, like The Man With X-Ray Eyes, Sweet Smell of Success, uh, The Honeymoon Killers. It's a real education. I basically would show uh, one or two films and then there'd be uh, also an introduction about five minutes long before the films. And for the first seven seasons, those were done by Alex Cox, who was best known as being the director of Repo Man. 
And he was always good because he would quite often go on a, off on a tangent in amusing ways or a lot of the time just be quite <laughs> quite insulting about the film and say, well, this film you're going to watch is it's not actually that good, which you sort of have to admire, really. It has a lot of time-lapse photography whereby the camera runs slowly, shooting only two or three frames every second. And as a result, cloud formations or what have you go extremely fast. It also has a lot of coloured filters on the camera lens whereby an ordinary street or sky or whatever is made to look weird. But what it doesn't have really is a sense of driving manic purpose. Compare it to The Incredible Shrinking Man or to The Thing, both part of this season. They were made in the 1950s and don't have the same attempts at humour. They're better, I think. The reason I want to talk about movie drama and champion it is because it's something i need to have a kind of bit of a rant about the state of uh what you might call cinephile culture nowadays you know i'm not a nostalgist totally um i think it's we're better off many ways because you know when i was in my 20s i had to watch so many classic films i saw for the first time on these terrible pan and scan four three ratio vhs's you know, and I've got no nostalgia for that, even though, you know, I used to work in a video rental store for a while because it was just a terrible format. And now you've got companies like Arrow Video and Indicator bringing out these immaculate widescreen, high def remasters of really obscure films. You've got subscription services like Mubi, where you can watch obscure foreign cinema. Um, so in terms of accessibility, we are probably much better off than we've ever been. Um, but what we don't have, which I really do miss was that thing of terrestrial channels that are really promoting and celebrating uh, cinema in the way that BBC Two used to do with Movie Drone. If you're interested in learning more about this film, the other films we're going to show, or the ones we showed last year or the year before, you can acquire for a very modest fee a Movie Drone book, which also tells you where you can get stills and soundtrack albums. So the first of my two choices, it's sort of... Um, it sort of personifies that in a way. It's a short film from Spain made for Spanish television in 1972. It's about, I think it's 35 minutes long, and it's called La Cabina, uh, which translates as The Telephone Box. Now, I can tell you exactly when I first saw this film, uh, thanks to the, the BBC's genome database, which is, logs all the Radio Times entries going back years. So I saw this when I was eight years old on the 25th of July, 1981 at 10:30 p.m which was the first and only showing of La Cabina on British television and it's the classic example of just a piece of filmmaking that you you stumble upon quite by accident and which is then seared into your brain forever which which just doesn't seem to happen anymore because no one is programming these sort of weird little curiosities basically uh, it's about a man who makes a phone call in uh, a public telephone box and then he finishes the call but finds the door were open. Uh, it's stuck, so he can't get out of this phone box. And he tries to attract the attention of passers-by. People come along and try to help him to get out, but no one can open this door. Uh, and then it proceeds from there. And I don't want to spoiler it for people, but what eventually happens is just absolutely horrifying, and it's been seared into my memory ever since. It's one of those lovely uh, bits of television where... Every few years, you'll bump into someone and you'll mention this film. It'll come up in conversation and they'll go, oh, God, I, I saw that in 1981 as well. Yeah, I've, ah, it's haunted me ever since. So this film wasn't shown on Movie Drone? 
Well, no, I've, I've chosen a couple of things that were never actually shown on Movie Drome. Um, so this is my programming. This is me being Alex Cox. And I am available uh, at a very reasonable rate if anyone at BBC Two is listening. So what's the second film in this double bill? My second choice is uh, a 1973 film called The Holy Mountain, which is representative of a similar kind of strand of TV programming from the that kind of cusp of the 80s, end of the 80s, start of the 90s, that was also very a big part of my cinematic education, which is the things that Jonathan Ross was doing on Channel 4. He did a series in uh, 88, 89 called The Incredibly Strange Film Show. And that introduced me to people like uh, Russ Mayer, John Waters, um, Pedro Almodovar. And then he did a follow-up to that in 1990, which was called Jonathan Ross Presents for One Week Only. And he had an addition on that about the Chilean filmmaker whose name I'm probably going to mangle now. Uh, I think it's Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, apologies to any Chileans listening. And ever since, he's been one of my favourite filmmakers. And a couple of clips in that documentary that were just seared into my brain. Ever since I saw those clips, it's been a film that I, I kind of practically force upon people and make them watch. And it's very hard to describe, but it's kind of a, just a, this surrealist hippie odyssey. And it's got some great sequences, one which was one of the clips on the programme, which is this sequence involving an arms dealer who's talking about making specialist weapons that are themed in different ways. So they might be rock and roll themed or religious themed. And it's just a great, great little clip. The young generation needs arms for its marches and sit-ins. psychedelic shotguns, grenade necklaces, rock and roll weapons, mystical weapons for Buddhists, Jews, and Christians. If you like strange films, basically, go and find The Holy Mountain. It's absolutely f***ing mental. What an entertaining lineup there is on Ian Berryman's Perfect Night In. It all starts at 6.30 with Doctor Who starring Tom Baker as he sucks off a giant green bin bag. That's followed by a reunion party at Tony Hancock's house at 7, before Xander saves the day in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But will anybody notice? Bob and Rose are still falling in love at 8.30, while at 9.30, Vic Reeves is getting ready to unleash the action image exchange on an unsuspecting public. In Moonlighting at 10, David and Maddie face their toughest case yet when they're hired by a lady in an iron mask. And that's followed by a drug-fuelled episode of Brass Eye, in which absolutely no one at all calls Michael Grade a c***. The evening rounds off at 11.30 with a special episode of Movie Drome, in which Ian introduces the films La Cabina and The Holy Mountain, and then apologises to his mum for all the swearing. And that's Ian Berryman's Perfect Night In. You'd be mad to miss it. Okay, Ian, one last question for you. If you could share this Perfect Night In with anyone, living or dead, who would you choose? Well, I'm probably going to make myself look good, aren't I, by saying the Dalai Lama or Nelson Mandela or something. Nah. I think my honest answer would be like any of the five or six people I've got a bit of a Twitter crush on. Or indeed all of them. Maybe you could maybe you could arrange a minibus. We don't necessarily have to talk or anything. They could just sit there as I watched and said amusing things and, and boost my pathetic male ego by just saying, that was funny, Ian.
That was funny, Ian. Thanks very much. Thanks, Neil.